Hello and welcome to this week's edition of Econoday Unplugged. It's Tuesday, 11th of August 2020. Mark Pender is across the pond stateside. And I'm Jeremy Hawkins here in extremely hot London where a lack of air conditioning is threatening to see my PC achieve spontaneous self-combustion even as we record this podcast. The confirmed global coronavirus count has just moved above the 20 million mark, but that hasn't stopped the inexorable rise in equities, and that despite the failure of US Congress to agree a new stimulus package last week. Indications that talks between the Republicans and Democrats will resume soon, speculation that President Trump is considering a cut in capital gains tax, and news that Russia has given regulatory approval for the world's first COVID-19 vaccine have all been used as justification for the latest gains, but ultimately it still seems to be the case that there's a lot of liquidity trying to find a home where rates of return are not negative. Meantime, tensions between the US and China continue to build as the two sides play tit for tat over political sanctions. And on that front, although it may not be having a major impact at the moment, keep an eye on the dollar renminbi yuan rate for a summary view of the market's assessment. If we were to see a clear break above seven, it might well suggest that uh, there's an escalation taking place, which could be a real threat to financial markets over the fullness of time. Something that wasn't negative last week was the announcement of a near 1.8 million increase in US non-farm payrolls in July. But Mark, was it all good news? Were there any sort of signs that perhaps recovery may be starting to struggle a little bit? Well, yes. Uh, the improvement wasn't uh, as uh, great uh, as was expected. And uh, it looks like there's a little bit of, uh, of uh, slowing. The headline did exceed um, expectations at uh, 1.8 million, um, about 100,000 uh, above a quantity's uh, forecast. But that was because of government payrolls. And if you exclude those, then it's... Um, about a hundred thousand below, so it was uh, it was uh, a mixed, uh, not a one hundred percent fabulous report. We got a and kind of confirmation of that um, yesterday with the Jolts report, which is a lagging report. This is uh, data for uh, June, but it showed. Uh, Again, uh, uh, a rise in job openings, but not relative to the enormous amount of uh, uh, 17.8 million uh, unemployed Americans looking for work, and they're uh, fighting over 5.9 million job openings. <clears throat> Excuse me. So that comparison kind of shows that uh, there is massive dislocation in the labor market, and. Excuse me, and and, and you know, we're talking about the uh, uh, equity markets going up, um, and maybe it's justified if you know based on consumer spending, I guess, which has survived very well. Will that continue without a fiscal package? Uh, maybe not, and that's you know part of the, what's playing out. Um, there's a lot of stimulus, liquidity, finding a home in the financial markets, and there's also a lot of money in the consumer sector because of the stimulus. Uh, you know, uh, uh, going into consumer spending. Okay. What about the output side? I mean, in terms of this week's big numbers, I suppose it's perhaps not it's not quite as jam-packed as some weeks we've had. But certainly, goods producing side, we're getting IP out from a number of different countries. Mm -hmm. um, how's it looking your side? Well, I, the uh, the relative gain for the production side of the economy is about eighty percent, seventy percent to where we were. 
uh, in February, and that's relative to a full recovery um, on the on the spending side. But again, at least on the retail side. But again, that uh, represents um, uh, the fiscal uh, uh, stimulus to the consumer. Um, but we're expecting another very strong rise in uh, industrial production on Friday, 3%. Uh, that would follow a 5.4% uh, rise in uh, June. And we've been getting a strong surge in motor vehicles, all the different motor vehicle readings, uh, whether imports, exports, uh, production. Uh, sales have been lagging a little bit, but they're going in the right direction. They're going up. Um, so uh, that looks – but aircraft, of course, is still depressed. And uh, whether how that responds is an unknown. And that, of course, raises the question with all this liquidity in the financial markets. It's almost looking past this major dislocation in how we produce goods and services and how we um, uh, acquire them. And uh, is it such, such a smooth, obvious uh, transition that it justifies um, – you know, increased uh, expectations, but you know, profits did turn out very well for the second quarter, beating expectations by a lot of these readings. Uh, the earnings seasons, which is winding up, by about 25%. They typically um, exceed uh, expectations. That's part of the game that companies play: keeping expectations down and then exceeding mm -hmm. them. Um, and uh, which kind of raises a question for me. Uh, Jeremy, the idea of, uh, you know, buying the rumor, selling the fact, uh, we are seeing, at least in the U.S., a slowing in infections. And um, would the financial markets rally further on this or would this actually mark a top and then people would begin taking their profits on such a news? That's just a question that popped in my head. Yeah, no, I think it's a very good question. And particularly at the moment, I think it's a very legitimate one as well. Because really, I think when you look around what's been happening for some while now, and you try to, you know, to justify this, you know, this, this huge rally we've had coming through in equity markets pretty well everywhere, um, it seems increasingly down to the fact that at the end of the day, there's a massive buyout there, um, which comes under the central bank umbrella, be it in terms of the Fed, the ECB, or in fact, you can always pick whichever central bank you want at the moment. And why are they doing all the purchasing? Well, they're doing it it was quite clearly you know they're undertaking massive QE because of a damage which is being caused to well potentially financial markets but crucially the global economy by the COVID-19 crisis now if you've got to start wondering if that's the case then what on earth happens when we start getting into the kind of environment when all of a sudden perhaps COVID is no longer the threat that it currently perceived as being and I think it's well the big worry for me would be that if we do actually start to see some good COVID-19 numbers, so effectively you know, the second wave doesn't really come about, um, the current wave is managed increasingly downwards to the extent that we get back to something close to normality, then presumably that's going to mean that some of this uh, huge expansion we've seen in central banks' balance sheets is going to be unwound. Now, people talk about the old taper tantrum in the past, which upset the emerging markets during uh, Mr. Bernanke's time. Well, it could be a heck of a lot more than that if we suddenly see a lot of central banks at the same time starting to talk about reducing their prospective purchases. So I think, you know, if you believe that equity markets, bond markets, almost any financial markets have moved a long way beyond where perhaps they should be fundamentally priced, and it's due to central bank and indeed government intervention to, to, to 
boost economic growth, then any kind of signal which suggests that intervention is going to start being unwound or slowed, wherever it may be, could well, as you mentioned, be a, a major trigger for you know, some kind of profit taking. And it's going to be extremely interesting, I think, to see how, how central banks are going to manage this. Well, that's a good question for the Fed because the Fed, Powell repeated in his press conference in the last meeting, uh, meeting what he said in the prior meeting, which was, I'm not, we're not even thinking about even thinking about, you know, uh, uh, withdrawing stimulus. So, um, so that's where they are. Now, whether or not anyone else, you know, they may be lagging in this regard, but they're, like you say, the signaling is going uh, to be a touchy um, they would probably, I would guess, mention this in some kind of a interview of some kind or something like that. Just throw out some trial balloons. I don't know. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, forward guidance is going to be hugely important now and how they actually manage this. Um, you know, all that said, I think certainly from a European standpoint anyway, the idea of any kind of reduction in um, quantitative easing, let alone the withdrawal of any kind of quantitative easing, is some way down the road. Just yesterday, we had one of the uh, deputy governors from the, in fact, on this morning, I think, one of the deputy governors from the Bank of England effectively intimating, well, if we don't get the recovery we want, then we're more than happy to come out and raise the quantitative easing easing ceiling still further. They've got no intention of doing any kind of tightening of policy until what they regard as, as the, um, the, the spare capacity in the economy which uh, they now tend to proxy by various measures of unemployment until that starts to narrow significantly and begins to close. Basically, Bank of England policy is going to remain extremely loose. And I think exactly the same can be said for the ECB as well, where most of the talk at the moment is that they're worried because we've had some renewed spikes in coronavirus, in, notably in Germany, which is starting to become a worry now. But Italy, Spain, Greece, uh, Portugal as well, uh, most of those countries are not huge spikes at this stage. But it is, is this kind of you know warning bell that well look this issue is still out there it hasn't been fully beaten yet so it can't be taken for granted that existing policies as they currently stand anyway are going to work so I think you know as far as Europe's concerned almost you know in terms of blanket coverage if we're going to see policy being moved over the course of the next six months or so it's going to be towards you know further easing the idea of tightening I think is an awful long way down the road well uh, you had a sentiment report out of Germany today and the expectations uh improved quite a lot. Is that right? We did that. Yep, we did indeed. We had the, uh, the ZEW, uh, their business sentiment survey. It's broken down into a couple of components. So we have what, and these are financial analysts. So it's a survey of what the financial experts are saying. I'll have a current component and an expectations component. And as you said, expectations have pulled back extremely well from the lows we saw immediately during the you know, the peak of the coronavirus. And they're running at, you know, well, I'm not to say all time highs now, but they're running at historically extremely high levels. Now, I suppose, you know, the counterpoint to that is you would have to say, well, having been so low after the coronavirus initially struck, I mean, you would hope at this stage your expectations would be very high because there's an awful lot of ground to make up. Um, but the current conditions index, that actually deteriorated a little bit. And although, yes, it is reasonably far now off the uh, below we saw in what April time, it's mm -hmm. still historically very weak. So I think, yeah, with what we are, what we're seeing as analysts sort of constantly adjusting uh, what's going on now, according to well, pretty well the latest COVID data. Or in this case, we also had confirmation of the you know, the bad GDP number of the second quarter. Well, that was really no surprise for Germany. But also looking at you know the COVID numbers of you to well, 
you know, expectations about the future. Is government policy working? And I think from a German standpoint, um, notwithstanding the, this, this spike we've had just recently, I think, you know, analysts have confidence that German anti-COVID policy is, is still working. Um, what else we've got? UK, I should mention, we had some labour market um, earlier on today. As I mentioned, it's become, I suppose, all the more important now since the last uh, Bank of England meeting last week. Then they really did indicate that they're looking at that increasingly closely now uh, with a view to how they're going to do or what they're going to do with policy. They still have this 2% inflation target, of course, to meet over the medium term. But in terms of where policy goes from here, um, um, the good news is for them is that unemployment, measured on the sort of the international labor organization measure continues to be remarkably low i mean it was 3.9 percent on a this is in the second quarter unchanged from its previous reading which you know, even on historical basis is is low but what we are starting to see now increasingly is that this rate is well this rate has been held down for a while now by all the furlough programs and support programs that the government's been putting through it's also been held down by an increasing number of of disenchanted workers who are simply falling out of a labour force. So uh, the participation rate's coming down now. And what we've also seen as a counterpoint to this is that unemployment is starting to be hit quite hard. So the second quarter saw a decline in, sorry, in employment, I should say, um, of what, 220,000 or so. And that's its biggest quarterly decline we've had in a decade. So I think with wages also extremely soft, I mean, will wages, real wages, if I can say it, mm. are now falling at the fastest annual rate since March 2012. Mm. You know, for central banks generally, we're getting into the kind of period now whereby they've got to start thinking about, well, what do we do when these furloughs um, well, program yeah, I have, come I have to So I need a little context out here in the U.S. So uh, uh, there's been, I'm not sure how you want to measure it, but at, by the end of July, there was a, a more than 15 million uh, fewer Americans employed than there were um, in um, before the crisis, which is roughly 10% of the U.S. labor market. So roughly 10%, excuse me, have lost their jobs, whether they're self-employed or whether they're on payrolls. Now, in your in your report in the U.K., it said that 22% of employees were being furloughed. Now. You have a 3.9% unemployment rate. Ours is uh, over 10%. Now, that being furloughed means that they're that they still are an employee of the company uh, that they were before the crisis hit. That's right. So they don't appear in the unemployment statistics, but by the same token, they're also well the, under the furlough scheme. The government will pay up to 80% of their wages. So and, and that's, how do they keep? Okay, so they're not. So the employer is still in business. They're not going out of business. Not they may yet, go out no. of business, right? They may go out of business. Well, this is right the big question, yeah. I mean, the, the big issue is, and as again, going back to uh, what the bank was saying um, earlier on today, the big concern is that when this furlough scheme comes to an end, I mean, it's a proper title is the coronavirus job retention scheme, as the government calls it. Now, it's actually due to close completely on the 31st of October. Um, 
Uh, and there is this big question mark of what is going to happen to those workers who are currently furloughed. So long as you've got the government effectively paying, what, you know, four-fifths of their wages, then an employer is going to be quite happy to keep them on their books. But once that subsidy goes away, we're quite simply going to see a number of industries, or a number of companies within various industries are going to go to the wall. And we're almost definitely going to see unemployment going up. And for those companies which are still financially viable, they're going to be looking to you know, work with a small, presumably with a smaller labour force as they can possibly get away with until such times we get back to somewhere close to normal levels of demand. Mm-hmm. So it is, I think, you know, and I can't help wondering if to some extent you know, financial markets and perhaps investors have been looking at recent numbers and it's easy to say, well, we knew the second quarter was going to be bad because mm-hmm. of COVID-19. But, you know, look at many of the numbers perhaps haven't been quite as bad as we thought and all this sort of thing. But mm-hmm. that's because, you know, the, the real problems are still in the pipeline. We haven't, haven't actually got that far yet. Mm-hmm. Well, now you call this. OK, I have a couple of questions. All right. Or one question, just a comment on the word scheme. Now, you uh, you call this a scheme in in in, in the U.S. The, that has like a, the a Ponzi scheme, right? I mean, a scheme has a kind of a negative connotation. Okay. Now, so I don't think that you mean that to be a negative connotation. No, not but, at all. Okay. Pro, I mean, you could call it program, but the what the official title for our scheme, um, okay. our program, is the coronavirus <laughs> job retention it's, scheme. Yeah. It's not okay. And uh, now, is this what we see in the UK, is this a model typical of, of Europe that we see it in, yes. Ger- in Germany and France? So they've been able to hold down. I mean, we talked about this, I guess, but I'm getting a little bit more detail now. They've been able to hold down their unemployment rate. Uh, see, unlike the U.S., um, the companies just uh, fired them or laid them off or went out of business. Um, the European model seems to be to try to hold uh, the companies themselves um, together with the employees in that company, which is a completely different uh, way than we're doing it here. Yeah, I think that's that's exactly right. And what they've been trying to do is to hope that if they can see the companies through the worst period, then by the time we come out or start coming out the other side, yes, Uh unemployment is necessarily going to go up because companies won't be able to afford to employ the same numbers they did before. But by keeping those companies hopefully financially solvent, or at least as many as they can do, then it's going to mean that the hit the jobs market is not going to be as bad as it would have been, say, if they're just simply right, well, okay, we'll give you increased unemployment pay, in which case unemployment rates in the UK now would probably be, be well, instead of, you know, uh, just over 3%, it'd be up around 8%, 9%, perhaps 10%. Oh, one last thing on the UK employment report was the average hourly earnings uh, went down and they've been going up here. Uh, or they had been going up here. Um, so what what do you see ahead for wages? Well, I think they're going to continue to be negative for some while. Um, I mean, in some ways, the, what the, the underlying average earnings numbers or you know, wages, if you want to call them, give you a better idea of what's actually happening in the labour market. They've really been moving down quite sharply um, since the uh, coronavirus hit. And that's because, well, clearly there's complete lack of demand and workers who were employed were that much more prepared to accept lower wages in the first place. But also those workers who became furloughed all of a sudden had a 20 percent reduction in their take home pay. So that you know, comes straight through into into the average wage wages numbers. And also bonus payments uh, to all intents and purposes went out the window. Um, they were down, I can't remember from top head, something like 19 percent, I think, year on year. 
clear. Mm-hmm. So you know, that really gives you a, a better you know, picture of what's happening in terms of underlying trends, I think. So again, so, yeah, I'm sorry. Well, it's so interesting because it's the opposite here. I, uh, the average hourly earnings completely spiked in April and they're still way high, 4.8% year on year. Um, in the last report, last week's report for July, that's you know 50% bigger at least uh, than they were going into the crisis, and that's because the low wage segment has been evaporated to a significant yeah. degree, and yeah. and so you just take them out of the pool, and the average wage uh, goes up. So it's just it's a it's almost like a night and day mirror kind of an image we're seeing here between uh, across the Atlantic. Yeah. Well, one last which I think we're, a good way I think of looking at it is rather than your know, numbers or average earnings, whatever, look at your know, average weekly hours worked or you know some measure of of of, of, uh-huh. of, of the work week. And the UK numbers show today for the second quarter, uh, they were down a record. Where are we? Two hundred and three point three million hours million, on the previous average, year. Actually, so that's the total work. That's hilarious. That's you total, actually total, you multiply total hours you, the total hour the total hourly work of a whole country i had never heard of that so yeah what does it come out to well this is is total weekly hours so for the uk in the second quarter it was 849.3 million and that was down where are we just over 203 million hours on the previous year and down over 190 million hours versus the first quarter and that's why when we get the gdp numbers out tomorrow for the uk this will be our first look at the second quarter we're going to see a very big fat negative well i know you put your share of those hours in for the uk (laughs) don't we all working for a con day what else could we do Okay. Um, what else have we got? I probably, well, I say, I, sh- I suppose I mentioned about industrial production, so I should mention it uh, just quickly finish that piece off because it's the main numbers out of Europe this week as well. So for the Eurozone, uh, Wednesday, we're due to get the June uh, data there. They're expected up 10%. That'll be after 12.4%. And what does that actually mean? Well, it means that the level of industrial production, and of course, the levels are so much more important than these growth rates at the moment. The level in June would still be, ignoring revisions, 11% percent or so below the pre-lockdown uh, in February. So output here in terms of recovery is still lagging demand, at least on the basis of retail, sell, retail sales, which as of June, uh, volume sales are actually marginally above their mm-hmm. pre-lockdown mm-hmm. level. Same here. Uh, yeah. Yeah, so it's interesting, isn't it? So demand, but again, it's kind of wondering how much of this is pent up demand. And once we start to see the unemployment numbers going up and the, you know, the fall in disposable income, we're particularly seeing in Europe and especially the UK starts to feed through what it's going to do for consumption as we go forward. OK, um, well, I think that's probably about it from my side. Um, Any yeah. else from yours? No, uh, that's good. Yeah. Oh, well. In terms of central bank roundup, since we always like to mention the central banks, we disappear. Uh, Reserve Bank of New Zealand are out later today. No changes expected in their official cash rate at 0.25% or their current quantitative easing ceiling, which stands at 60 billion New Zealand dollars. But it's not a given. Um, Like a lot of other countries at the moment, the um, the RBNZ has expressed concerns about what's going to happen when these government support measures are are withdrawn. um, and a lot of these uh, subsidies are due to end next month. So it could well be the case that you know, they may perhaps not do anything in terms of uh, policy today, but you know, they're clearly probably going to come out with some kind of dovish bias to affect uh, if we see the economy starting to move back down again. And it's got to be said, the New Zealand economy has actually held up pretty well so far. But if we do see it starting to move back down again, then the RBNZ will probably come out and ease again as well. 
Okay, on which note then, let us end it there for this week. From um, Mark and myself, thanks as always for listening. We'll be back next week as usual. And in the meantime, keep up to date with all the key market moving data and events in Econoday's global economic calendar. Stay safe and we'll see you next time. Bye for now.